usually proportional to how you've diluted the iron. So please, please, please follow the package insert about how to dilute iron. So you shouldn't over-dilute because you're much more likely to liberate free iron from that infusion. So some okay. of our modern preparations say, um, so ferric carboxymaltose, you should re- reconstitute in 100 to 250 mils because that has been shown to decrease the risk of um, these fish pain reactions. That's really interesting. Yeah. But- Welcome back to the podcast. Um, this week we have two guests, uh, Dr. Anastasia Keegan, who was here recently talking about um, bleeding disorders in pregnancy. Um, thanks for coming back, Anastasia. We Thank didn't you scare for you inviting off. me back, not at all. <laughs> and I've got a colleague of mine in the anaesthetic department here, um, Nola McDonnell, who uh, in the past I think we did some uter- episodes on uterotonics. Yes, we have. Uh, and fluid embolism. And what else have we done? I think we've done something else as well, but I can't Vas- remember. Well, did we cover vasopressors? We might have covered vasopressors. No, we point. didn't. I, I was uh, hoping it's to. On yep. It's on our list. It's next. On our list. Okay. Um, so this week um, we got together and we thought we would talk about some hypothetical cases, which um, these might seem familiar to some of the registrars I've um, given a tutorial to over the years. These are hypothetical cases of patients with um, anemia slash patient blood management sort of scenarios. And... Um, they're all, hopefully, will sound very um, similar to many real cases that we encounter here in uh, King Edward because uh, they're all obstetrical, gynecological scenarios. And hopefully, we'll tease out some interesting educational points. Um, shall I introduce the first case? Go for it. Yep. Okay, so case number one is Mrs. F. F. Fatigued. Mrs. Fatigued. Um, so in the pre-admission clinic, you see a 34-year-old female with um, menorrhagia, fibroid uterus, and she is booked to have an open myomectomy in two weeks. Um, her hemoglobin is 88, her ferritin is 18, uh, her iron is 29, and her transferrin saturations are 33%. So the first question I ask um, in the scenario uh, is... Explain how to interpret the iron studies. Um, before actually, before we go any further, I'll just what I'll um, let listeners know is that if you want to um, have a look at this case, uh, these cases, I will post them in uh, written form on the uh, on the website. If you click on your phone or your device, so you can have, have have a look at it while we're talking. So, how do we interpret the iron studies? I'm going to throw that one to Anastasia because. Thanks, Roger. <laughs> all, I, all I know is if, if it's ferritin's less than 30, then they've got iron deficiency. And after well, that, it gets a bit confusing. I think that is the number way takeaway message of today. <coughs> so ferritin less than 30 is diagnostic of iron deficiency. So I think that's a really important place to start. Um, but as you've said, she's got a hemoglobin of 88, and uh, that would be consistent with anemia. So she has an iron deficiency anemia. But let's take a step back further and have a think about yep. what your iron studies can tell you. So when I think about interpreting iron studies, I think about what I'm, what does the iron studies tell me and what part of the component, um, what part of the iron store are we looking at? So um, in iron studies, you get a serum iron, we get a ferritin, we get a transferrin saturation and a transferrin. And we know that iron as a molecule is a very reactive molecule and it must be bound to something else because it causes lots of damage to the bottom yep. if it if it's liberated um, around the body. 
So I think of ferritin as your body's store, almost like your pantry that has all your um, all your groceries in it, so it's your store of iron. I think of transferrin as the shopping carts that help you carry your iron into or carry bags into your storage component or your pantry. Yep. And the free iron is literally just what you've put into that bag. And it's a very transient um, way to think about iron. And I never look at it, but I'll come back to that. Okay. And then the transferrin saturation is the percentage of those shopping bags that are full with a, a particular shopping item to go into your pantry. So that's how I think about it. And then the last store of the iron is where do we use the iron? And that's in our red blood cells. So I never really look at anything in isolation. So I always look at iron studies. I always look at the haemoglobin. And in certain populations, um, there's recommendations to do a CRP because we know that ferritin is an acute phase reactant. Yes. And in the absence of inflammation, your ferritin absolutely corresponds beautifully with the amount of iron in your bone marrow. So the capacity to make new red blood cells from the iron but any inflammation whatsoever, that makes everything a little bit more tricky. Yeah, so if so, let's just clarify that. So say you've got um, inflammatory bowel disease mm. or cancer or something and you have in an inflammatory state, mm. you're releasing ferritin, but that ferritin doesn't actually have iron inside it. Not at all. So, so it's just uh, sort of misleading. Absolutely. Yeah. And so people often ask me, at what level does the CRP correlate? How can I, if somebody's CRP is 200, how can I interpret that relative to a patient's ferritin? You really can't. The best way to use CRP in interpreting iron studies is if it's normal, less than five, then there is no inflammation in the body and you just interpret those iron studies, predominantly the ferritin, uh, for the body's total iron stores. Greater than five, it's difficult. You need to use your brain and you need to look at the transfer and saturation in the whole picture. But it's not just someone with a lot of inflammation. It's someone with obesity, heart failure, all these chronic diseases can increase your inflammatory markers. Okay. Can I ask Anastasia a question, Roger? Yes, go Put for her it. on the spot. So, do you see a role for hep sedin? Uh, and can you talk to us about the role of hep sedin and, and iron metabolism and its utility? So, hep sedin, if I'm giving the example of how do I fill up my, um, my cupboard, my storage, um, my larder of food, I say hep sedin would be your credit card to go shopping. So, it's the, the switch that says you can buy more groceries. And it basically is the body's control mechanism to absorb more iron from the gut. Most of the iron that we have in our body, the one to two milligrams that's recycled um, through the body, the maj- about 20% can come through your diet uh, through the small bowel. And that's usually controlled by the basolateral membrane of the proximal small bowel. Um, and the switch or the credit card is really that hepcidin molecule. There are hepcidin assays available, but it's really research only. Um, and some people have said that hepcidin might be a better correlation to when do you get a switch between your gut absorbing iron and not, so um, a marker of inflammatory states or not. Still only available in the research setting, but it's exciting. Okay. Too much. So No, and that was my understanding that potentially some utility is those patients with a ferritin greater than 30 but less than 100. So I um, use good old-fashioned, like, you know, the concept of the back of an envelope. What can, when I have these chats to people, it's what can they use all day, every day in their, in their clinical practice? Yep. What, can you, what information can you get from a $30 iron studies? And that's when I'd be talking about if we're worried and we can't interpret a ferritin because they might be falsely elevating the setting of inflammation, let's look at the other results that are available. And for me, that would be the transferrin saturations. Okay. What, what's in that shopping bag? Is it good quality stuff or is it rubbish? And the transferrin saturation helped me interpret if someone's iron deficient um, in the setting of inflammation. And so if I would say if the transferrin saturation is less than 20%, 
So if you've got a shopping bag and there's only tw- it's only 20% full and it should be 100% full, then that would be consistent with iron deficiency because they're not able to liberate iron to be transferred into fer- ferritin for this use. This is a, a quick question. So um, what about the patient who's got like quite um, significant iron deficiency but they've just taken uh, an iron tablet that morning before they have their blood tests? Does that interfere with transfer and saturations? So that... Or the iron, free iron level, which no one ever looks at when that's supposed to. Yeah. Do you know, when I was a medical student or even a junior doctor, people looked at iron all the time. And so I felt like I kept constantly saying, don't look at the iron, don't look at the iron. The only reason we include iron in iron studies is to show that we, uh, we basically only use the free iron in the iron studies to calculate the transferrin and the transferrin saturation. And the only okay. reason we publish it is to check our maths basically so don't look at it it's only published for that reason um and um the the free iron is basically what's circulating when you've had a meal best you shouldn't really have iron studies if you had a meal but you know that's fine it's not that important so Anastasia just as a segue because you Mm. raised it um, and one of the first things that you said just about the toxicity of Mm. of iron in the bloodstream Mm. so there is this syndrome which happens in about one in a hundred iron infusions I thought I digress slightly if you're mm. happy to talk about it um, because it's probably more common than what people realise but it also mimics some other conditions and so in a way we need to know about it whenever we're doing iron infusions mm. and it's got a really unusual name which I Fishman which I can never remember Fishbane that's Fishbane. right yeah. named after yeah. an ephologist <laughs> exactly yeah. right yeah. so um, yes are you happy to talk about Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, one of so a fish. Uh, so, if you do have an IV iron infusion, uh, there is a rareish reaction called a fishbane reaction. Um, the fishbane reaction happens within one to two minutes of a, an infusion, and it's basically where a patient gets chest pain, back pain, and you think, "Cripes, this is anaphylaxis. This is bad." Yeah. They get flushed. They were like, "I'm or out of here." Or angina or something. Yes. That's what people have thought. And mm-hmm. you're just like, "I'm out of here." Um, but the patient does not have hemodynamic compromise and does not have any respiratory compromise, and that's how you differentiate it from anaphylaxis. The pathophysiology behind this really florid reaction is that you there is endothelial release of nitric oxide from the labile iron in the IV iron infusion. Right. And it only happens for about two or three minutes post-infusion. Stop the infusion, give the patients reassurance um, and give them some hydration and it passes. If you're a really good doctor and you've reassured them, they'll let you give you the rest of the iron. But it's really just that endothelial dysfunction as a, res- a release of nitric oxide. And yep. those labile iron that's in the IV iron infusion, that will act, it's usually proportional to how you've diluted the iron. So please, please, please follow the package insert about how to dilute iron. So you shouldn't over-dilute because you're much more likely to liberate free iron from that infusion. So some okay. of our modern preparations say um, sort of ferric carboxymaltose you should re- reconstitute in 100 to 250 mils because that d- has been shown to decrease the risk of um, these fish pain reactions. That's really interesting. Yeah, and Anastasia, my, I know you said it's rare, but my understanding is uh, uncommon might be an, another term for I it because it's about one in 100 or yeah, so. Yeah, it's probably more along that, um, but I was thinking those really severe ones yeah. that make people uncomfortable, like as in yes. you guys would be running. So the Met call would be t- called, um, the Anistas would be running thinking, cripes, this is bad. Yeah. But they can be much less severe reactions. I feel like, because I remember when we opened the iron and mm. uh, the infusion unit um, years ago, probably 10 years ago now mm. or more, um, that that happened occasionally. I, had to, I got mm. paged and I had to go up, and, um, but it seems much less frequent. Yeah, well, for a, a high-volume unit like we are, that's probably we're at least over seven to 800 iron infusions a year. 
um, we probably don't see it quite as often as what we would think it would happen. So Mate. I've been here for... 18 months, nearly two years, and I think there's been one that I maybe would have thought might have been associated yeah. with it. But for those people who don't infuse frequently, they think, oh, it's anaphylaxis, or it's a really bad severe yeah. reaction. Um, and uh, it won't surprise anyone to know that we follow policies and guidelines very strictly. So there's no, you know, we make it up as per product information, and so we haven't seen them. Okay, that's good. Yeah, sorry to digress. I just no, that's okay. We, we talked about it. I thought I would raise it right. That's good. So, um, I'll just so re- I guess remind everyone about I was there. thinking about, from when you think about iron studies, yep. I would always, so if I'm trying to assess somebody's um, haemoglobin and their iron studies, I would look at their haemoglobin, their MCV, so their size of the red blood cells, um, and look at their ferritin number one. Uh, if the ferritin is less than 30, and I think this is a young, fit person, which most of our patients are, that's diagnostic of iron deficiency anemia because she's anemic. Um, if it was a little bit more complicated, say the ferritin was between 30 and 100, my next eye, my next thought would be, would tell me about those transfer, transferrin saturations. If it's less than 20%, I'd say that would be consistent with iron deficiency as well. Okay, that's good. So in this um, scenario, we've got a woman who's got um, menorrhagia and she's got iron deficiency anemia and she's coming for... A, open myomectomy, which is mm-hmm. usually um, yeah. it's quite a big procedure it's and nice. is often or can be associated with quite a lot of blood loss. So I guess with the patient blood management hat on, we want to get her anemia corrected before she comes for surgery. So when she does bleed or if she does bleed she, and drops her hemoglobin, she won't need to be transfused. She shouldn't be above the threshold where someone needs to give her a blood product. Um, so what should we, uh, the next question is, what should we do about her anemia and why? It says, it says she's booked for the surgery in two weeks. Nolan? I think (laughs) the first response to that is that this is a difficult situation because with her pathology, she does have ongoing bleeding Mm. uh, potentially and uh, we need to uh, (coughs) get control of the bleeding from that sense, which may not be able to be accomplished with non-surgical measures. Um, But certainly there's certain things that the gynecologist can try to decrease the bleeding, so oral tranexamic acid, for instance. Um, and I think uh, it's probably important to recognise that a haemoglobin of 88 in this situation, depending on her background, uh, physiology and pathophysiology, is sort of intermediate in regards to anemia. Um, but if it was a male presenting with a haemoglobin of 88, we'd be a lot more concerned about the degree of anemia. Um, and it's an yes. unfortunate byproduct of, uh, of medicine at the moment um, or a long-standing issue that we have different reference ranges for women. Uh, so we don't necessarily treat women as aggressively as what we might treat men in a similar situation. I'm going to digress now. I'm going to <laughs> too. <laughs> you didn't. Say, so the um, so the reference range. This is. Can you uh, yeah. fill me in there, Sasha? But my understanding was the reference ranges uh, for men and women were just based on like a big population study where they just took a large number of people and then averaged it out. And presumably, because women are much more likely to have disease, i.e., uh, anemia. Babies. Anemia. But so from I think the, the original studies were in the 1960s to 1970s and a, yeah. and a small proportion of women um, with a high incidence of iron deficiency, essentially. Yeah, and so, so basically the reference not, ranges were based really, on, on normal... It's not telling us on what's the healthy number. Mm-hmm. It's just telling us that, on average, women are more likely to have a lower hemoglobin than men. That's not normal. No. That's just a... So I think, unfortunately, you're right, Nolan, it is the misogyny of healthcare at the moment. Um, And so the WHO still says there's a difference in baseline haemoglobins, and a reference range is meant to help you identify disease from health, like you were saying. 
Um, and I think Nolan and I are both hinting that um, a haemoglobin of 115 may actually represent chronic a chronic lack of recognition that a woman does. There is no biological yes. reason why a woman should and have And sometimes we have had women presenting for um, things like, I remember in the past, not now, but um, placenta recreta surgery and they had a hemoglobin of 116. And uh, we were <laughs> we had trouble accessing an iron infusion because they weren't anemic. Uh, and we were like, hmm, but... So, I, I mean, I, I always think that if I turned up to my family doctor and I had a haemoglobin of 115, they'd be incredibly concerned. Yes. Whereas if my wife uh, turned up to the GP with that level, there would be far less degree of concern about yep. that. And due to the potentially flawed methodology of the reference ranges that we're dealing with in females at the moment. Um, so I think we've got a, a grossly undertreated Yes. So just to unpack that a little bit further, um, the community within haematology have been really advocating for this and so there's been quite a few publications trying to highlight this um, and there's brought together some really, really elegant studies to ask, well, why is, so some people have said, um, is there a biological reason? Because if you compare the haemoglobins of a of uh, men and women across the ages, men and women, or boys and girls, have exactly the same haemoglobin and they start yep. to diverge at menarche. Okay. And then hem, men and women haemoglobin come back again uh, at menopause. So people have said, is this because of the sex hormones? Is there estrogen-related changes? Is there testosterone-related changes? And we know that's not the case because if we look at transgender populations, the lower haemoglobin populate, uh, lower haemoglobin will be the same in a transgender man as a transgender woman. Uh, and what's really different is that time of menstruation. So is it heavy menstrual bleeding if not being diagnosed? Is it recurrently pr recurrent pregnancies that don't, don't have an optimised haemoglobin in the peripartum situation? But there's um, a lot of movement within the haematology space to try to change these reference ranges. Okay, so that makes sense. I mean, you know, losing iron, i.e. Um, menstruating or having babies is is the thing that's moving it. And it's been relatively well shown in obstetrics with if you correct the iron deficiency, essentially you have a completely different haemoglobin trajectory yes. um, and a more normal haemoglobin trajectory during pregnancy than if you've got untreated iron deficiency. And this may yep. not be interested to the audience, but maybe to the women listening, is that we found that mortality increased by fivefold if you had a haemoglobin less than 110 in your 70s and 80s as a woman, and every one gram per litre of haemoglobin dropped, your mortality increased by another 5%. That's not good. So it's it's not just a number; it actually has health income uh, implications. So I think it's um, a really interesting thing that we should all be thinking about. So if your haemoglobin is a under 115 um, and you're a female, we need to do something about it. And I always say to the registrars that is that comment I had before: if we can see a woman in pre-admission clinic with a haemoglobin like Roger discussed, you know, at 116 or you know 111, 112, but if I rocked up. Mm -hmm. with a haemoglobin of that, we'd get completely different management, completely different treatment. I guess the very last thing to say is physiologically a woman's haemoglobin will fall during pregnancy as a result of those physiological changes. Yeah, but dilution. I guess we're saying yep. Dilution. So I guess I'm, I'm not saying... Um, I'm recognising there's a normal physiological dilution that happens in pregnancy, but we're talking outside pregnancy. Um, yes. Yep. Yeah, but also, mm. like I said, when we correct the ferritin in pregnancy, we don't see anywhere near the haemoglobin drop Spot on. that we that we associate with a normal pregnancy as such. Spot on. Yeah. Yep. All right, that's good. So we might um, get through. How many cases so this afternoon? You, <laughs> we're going to split these up, and each I think each case is going to go on uh, its own episode. So. Um, and this first one, we still haven't even unpacked everything here. So we've decided that um, we want to optimise this woman's haemoglobin. I'm going to jump in and say um, 
yeah, we, oh, I think the question was, what should we do about our anemia? So obviously we've got a short period of time. Mm. Um, so oral iron takes months to work really, doesn't it? So we probably want to give her some intravenous iron. Um, but we've skipped over the, the next question, which is what are the pros and cons of oral iron? Should we do that? So we, I guess we can do that very easily. In yeah. um, oral iron, it does work in most people if you can tolerate it. So it is cheap, it's accessible, it, uh, and however, everyone knows the toxicity is going to be GI-related. We need, we know that we need an adequate dose of oral iron to replace uh, stores to ensure that we actually have enough iron to get into the uh, to the bone marrow to make new red blood cells. And evidence had historically talked about 100, and I open brackets to 200 milligrams of elemental iron um, to re- to manage iron deficiency anemia. So not just iron deficiency, but iron deficiency anemia. Um, and I, I reckon I would have got a few people gasp at that because by 200 milligrams of elemental iron, most people's tummies are going to be really, really sore and your compliance with a do- with a medicine that makes you feel as bad as your symptoms of iron deficiency is um, unlikely to make you want to continue to take that tablet. But there's been some really nice studies over the last decade that said if you weren't if you didn't have severe anemia and you didn't have a short time, it's quite appropriate to use uh, lower doses of 60 milligrams of elemental iron, even on alternate days, so you yep. increase compliance. But it will take longer to achieve that total iron. What's the rebalance. maximum amount of um, elemental iron your gut can transport each day if you don't have inflammatory bowel disease or anything? So I think this is a really interesting question. So yep. what you're heading towards is every single time you get a bolus of iron, you'll have a flip where your little credit card comes out, your hepcidin will come out, switch off yep. your absorption of iron, and it's probably around 45 to 50, yep. probably. And um, so that's the theory behind alternate yep. days. So exactly you have, right. So once you've swallowed your first tablet, then for, then for 24 hours the hepcidin is turned off. Credit card's in the wallet. Sort of shut the door and yep. you can't absorb anything across across the gut. But if you wait you know, a day, have a day off and then try again, it's, all the doors are open and you can absorb And that's iron. kind of a good strategy for maintenance. Um, and so I'd always start with that is uh, if you had a woman, who, this woman would be a perfect example. We'll optimise her for her procedure. Um, it, so prior to coming to surgery, if we had time, I think that's what we could have said to her to maintain her iron stores as best as possible. Um, but it's pr- it's not really going to be an option in the setting of having a open abdominal surgery uh, with a high bleeding risk and she's already iron deficient anemic. So Anastasia, could you clarify what the gut, the actual percentage of gut absorption is of oral iron? Because my understanding is it's very low, about it's four to six percent of what you take in. Because I'll let patients say to me, oh. You know, I'll change my diet and increase my iron intake, and even in those situations, it's it's difficult. We're really with oral iron; it's incredibly difficult in these situations. Indeed. So when we become iron deficient, your gut will increase your absorption of iron by um, fivefold, just with iron deficiency. So it's got great mechanisms to maximise the amount of iron you absorb. However, um, you'll just uh, if you absorb la- if you have a large dose of iron, even in a large so a big steak. Um, you'll just sloth off that basal. Uh, you'll just sloth off that layer of your gut um, if you get more than the amount of iron you need to absorb anyway, and it just ends up in your stools. So, it, and that's all about the regulation. You don't want to take too much, but you need enough to, you know, to maintain your iron stores. So it's not, it's not as much as you think. Um, however, they try to give you the highest dose possible for you to absorb a bolus in inverted commas from your gut. Um, but then you have that refractory period where you can't absorb any more because your hepcidin levels are high. So, Anastasia, yeah. could you clarify some of the differences between the different preparations of oral iron as well? So there's about there's almost a hundred preparations of medicine. Uh, what should I say? 
of uh, tablets that have iron. They range all the way from multivitamins through to therapeutic iron replacements. And so it's really important for people to actually read the label and have a look at how much elemental iron are in it. So um, multivitamins for pregnancy is only about 5 milligrams, sometimes up to 12 if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really kind of um, almost balanced diet sort of levels of iron that would be coming in those multivitamins and that would not be adequate to replace a woman's iron stores, definitely not in pregnancy, especially if you've had repeat pregnancy or other high-risk factors. Yep. Um, so you really do need to have an allocated medication that is oral iron replacement and there's about a dozen on the market at the moment um, that would have therapeutic levels of iron or elemental iron. So can I can I ask, probably the two main ones that we see through here is uh, ferrograde versus multifit. Yep. Um, what are the key differences between those preparations? So I guess from a very pragmatic perspective, I probably talk more about a dose. So okay. I'd be talking about the, the um, multiple can be these 60 milligrams. Um, but then the high doses, so ferrograd, FGF and all those sort of things, they sometimes come with vitamin C in them as well and that can has been shown to increase the absorption of oral iron. So if a woman doesn't want to have something uh, with the plus vitamin C, I would tell my ladies to have it with a glass of orange juice. So um, oral iron uh, absorption can be changed by the timing of your oral iron relative to your meals and you should take it on an empty stomach to maximise the absorption. However, it's most likely to cause your tummy to be upset. Um, so taking it with a glass of orange juice an hour before meals is the ideal way to do it. Um, but sometimes you need to be pragmatic and say, I'd rather you, and not in this lady's situation, but whatever you can tolerate for as long as possible that doesn't cause you harm, I think I'd be advocating for. You should be careful of taking it with PPIs, with calcium, with your coffees, because your coffee will decrease your absorption as well. Yes. Excellent. Um, okay, so... Um what about, so in this situation, well, obviously we've, we're going to recommend to her to have something um, quicker acting, so intravenous yep. iron. Yeah. The I pros think and no cons of, of, of that and the different preparations. So I think I was just going to say, no matter what oral iron replacement we give this lady, it's going to take her bone marrow five to seven days to um, absorb. So no matter what we did, even if we restored her, uh, her iron to the best capacity she's got, she's going to need five to seven days for her bone marrow to make new red blood cells. Yep. So I guess that's the end of the trial no matter how we get there and so that really only leaves us about five to ten days to try to um kind of maximize her hemoglobin so i think that's another reason why we'd be moving towards her having iv iron just because she's got maximum stores maximize the amount of red blood cells made in that time we've got available um and so iv iron i think it's it's fast it does need to be given in hospitals so women will need to balance their lives to come in to get the iron infusions multiple different preparations available from um, kind of short infusions that theoretically could be as short as 15 minutes up to 30 minutes for the um, more more modern preparations through to the good old-fashioned stuff that we all would have had to do when we were registrars that go over three to four hours, um, which is um, the older preparations. Um, pros and cons of them is it's probably coming down to convenience and cost would be my pragmatic sort of response of how to what's the difference between them the older preparations definitely had more elemental uh, sorry more labile iron in them and so that's why they used to be quoted to have higher rates of um, bad reactions such as anaphylaxis um, but I guess most people are moving towards the faster act uh, sorry the um, faster infusion times because they're more convenient for our patients but they have to be given in theory as an outpatient because of the cost of the infusions so that's the iron carboxymaltose and that's about is it about $300 yeah, still 250 300 yep um, uh, under the PBS, it's cheaper though, I think, isn't it? It's 
paid for by the mm. PBS, so yep. it's cheaper yeah. for the hospital, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but it still costs three hundred dollars. Yeah, but I think I think important in the in the cost equation, and this is what I will often talk to ladies about, um, particularly who I'm talking discussing about intravenous iron is. You're talking sort of three months potentially of being on oral iron to increase your stores to the same sort of level you'll get with, with an iron yep. infusion. Um, and for a lot of women, the convenience is a big factor in that and compliance yep. because um, taking the oral iron uh, over that over that period is cost you money essentially, but also you may be feeling the effects of your iron deficiency and your anemia for longer. Very reasonable. And if you think about our... Sometimes you'll value what you what you can't do like yeah so what you're not going to be able to do as a result of your iron deficiency so I think that's quite a reasonable um comment um so I guess the how do I consent my lady to have iron and I'm happy if anyone wants to jump in but I talk about because I do consents all the time for blood transfusions so I possibly talk about more things but I think if you uh tell people what to prepare what what could maybe happy you empower them so they're less anxious so I talk about um, what might happen at, at the time of their putting the cannula in. So there's a small risk of having some of the iron stain the skin through extravagation um, because that really does impact how young, anyone, but particularly young women would see themselves. And so having that yes. staining can be so a So that's real a impact. significant um, yeah, adverse event. And that's, I think, the most common medico-legal complication associated with intravenous iron. And Absolutely. so it's something that... Um, I always teach we have to consent for, essentially. It's one of the most important things to actually consent for. Um, And so that staining uh, will, may not always completely go away, and we really say that it would have up to two years for the macrophages to absorb the iron to see if there's any difference. So I'm really advocating for women to be referred for plastic surgery for for laser therapy to remove that first faster. Yes, I think we've had a couple of women over the years who we sent for laser therapy. I've I've definitely um, had a few women that I've... um, looked after in fact one woman today who was in the caesarean theater who had staining from iron and iron infusion but it's gone mm-hmm. um yep. so that's that's oh, good so yeah. that's good and so if you want to say why it's because the macrophages eat it up but that's a bit nerdy yep. um <laughs> fine moving on um so then i'd be talking about the more common things which would be the sensations of uh flushing or itching or really mild uh cutaneous allergic reactions um, and that usually actually happens as a result of the rate of the infusion more than anything else. There is a small population of those really, really atopic people, those really poorly controlled autoimmune women, or sorry, patients, um, who are more likely to have a moderate to severe allergic reaction. So good old fashioned allergic reaction, mucocutaneous rash, wheezy, um, feel quite rubbish and can have borderline changes in their blood pressure. Um, and in only in that patient population would I would would I support the use of pre-medications. Um, I do not routinely say that patients should get pre-medications. Yeah, and if you are going to use a pre-medication, what would you normally advise? And so I guess we're really thinking about um, the allergic responses, and so I'd be saying an oral and an oral non-sedating antihistamine and maybe some hydrocortisone. Um, at 100 milligrams prior to your infusion, but they're not benign. The, hydro- uh, the antihistamines are pretty benign, but I wouldn't be using a whole lot of or, um, IV hydrocortisone unless I needed to. So I really think we should be avoiding that unless there's a clear indication for when to do it. I do talk about the rare events of anaphylaxis, and if we were talking about the iron polymaltose, profa- really, really, really rare with the new preparations, and studies are re- post-marketing studies say the rates are less than 0.1%. Um, and these reactions can happen usually they're instant uh, or within minutes of starting the infusion but can occur for up to 30 minutes after 
And then what I actually tell my women about the most is post-iron infusion flu. So post-infusion yes. flu. Yep. And I reckon probably a third of, wi- third of the women that I look after will say, yeah, I feel a bit achy, I feel a bit off just felt like I had the flu for a while. And so if you let them know that might happen and you explain why it's happening and that it responds really nicely to paracetamol, they feel that um, they feel not distressed by it and they're happy and they understand the process. And how long does it last for? Okay. A day or two. A day or two, yeah. Yeah, so they get fevers, bone pain, and is that, and pain. is that more common in women with inf- uh, inflammatory conditions like inflammatory so bowel disease? It's not something I have definitely seen and I'd be interested to see your opinion. Um, I kind of thought it was more on... Those people really who don't have much around and it's their bone marrow hoovering up as much iron as possible. So I don't know the mechanism, but keen okay. to hear what you think. Yeah, difficult. I, I think we don't tend to look for it as much with the iron that we give in the hospital setting because it tends to happen post-discharge. Yes. Um, yeah. And so I'll always say, um, so if it's a non-obstetric woman, it responds beautifully to neurofen, um, but otherwise paracetamol is a really good thing to think yep. about. And I guess I can't do finish the full story. I don't see this much in obstetrics. Um, and if we're talking about the um, ferric carboxymaltose, there is a risk of having hypophosphatemia. It's probably yes. most commonly reported in ferric carboxymaltose, and it's all about how your osteocytes balance your iron to your calcium metabolism. It peaks at kind of two weeks post-IV iron infusion, and it is said to be asymptomatic. The people you need to be worried about are those patients who are having recurrent IV iron infusions like your inflammatory bowel disease. If you're getting IV iron every three months because your bowel is leaking badly, um, those are the patients that you should be... And those patients with underlying um, endocrinological disorders, they should be the ones that should have a three-monthly um, CMP to check out their phosphate. And what are the implications of the hyperphosphatemia? So from my understanding is they are... Um, so for the majority of patients who have a biochemical hypophosphatemia, I'm told I, I'm led to understand that it's really got no complications and it's got no adverse effects on these patients. So it's completely asymptomatic as a biochemical marker. Um, however, those patients who have had uh, recurrent IV iron infusions have chronic hypophosphatemia can develop osteomalacia. Okay. So okay. do you recommend doing a phosphate um, in certain situations prior to an iron, an iron infusion? So I don't because of my patient population. But if I was looking after someone with refractory, um, you know, they've got Crohn's disease and they are always in hospital, like really refractory um, inflammatory bowel disease, I would. If I had somebody who had endocrine disorders like thyroid disease or parathi- hyperthyroidism, I would. Um, and there are international guidelines that recommend rec- uh, repeat three-monthly monitoring for those patients. Um, but in my patient population, I don't do it. All right. Interested to hear if there's an objection or another. No, no, no we, I don't know much about that. Yeah, it's just become more of an issue, I think. Um, Absolutely. Aware of it. Certainly out in the community, and um, I've well, understood some patients haven't been out getting IV iron because of low phosphate levels and mm. things, but wasn't sure about what the actual implications of that are and how that should actually be managed. Okay. So the, the standard sort of average gynecological patient, so who has menorrhagia and gets occasionally gets an iron infusion, we shouldn't really make a big issue out of it. I yeah, That's definitely what um, the international literature is supporting. Okay. There's only, well, that just, just, about wrap, just about wraps up. There's only one thing I thought, maybe we should go back and just um, talk about the different iron preparations. Because um, yeah, when I talk about it, I usually... Uh, mentioned to everyone that um, there, there is still a little bit of sort of uh, memory in the hospital system or the medical system about iron dextran, which is an old preparation that's um, still used in North America but not used 
in Australasia anymore, and it used to actu- actually have a reasonably high incidence yep. of true anaphylaxis. Yeah, absolutely. It? And so, um, so people still do historically think mm-hmm. nitrovenicillin equals anaphylaxis, um, but the preparations that we have in, available in Australia and New Zealand now are iron polymaltose, which is this ch- the sort of cheap generic one which mm-hmm. we use in the hospital, and iron carboxymaltose. Mm-hmm. There's which is also the new one you were talking um, about. Yes, and there's iron sucrose, which is in, uh, yep. approved for renal failure, but yes. otherwise that's re- we don't really use it otherwise. Yep. But the iron dextrose was nasty stuff and definitely had a lot of labile iron, and when I was an intern, we had to use that, and we I would consent patients to 1 in 100 to 1 in 1,000 risk of anaphylaxis. Yeah, my, I'm not sure. I, I, I always thought it was the dextran causing an anaphylax, a true anaphylaxis, because I remember we used to have an intravenous colloid which was based mm. on dextran, and that was known to cause anaphylaxis as well. So I was thinking, well, it must be the dextran. So how do you choose which intravenous iron preparation you will select in, in your patients, Anastasia? Uh, so I'm I'm a rule follower, so I follow the PBS rules. I know that yep. is not exciting. You choose and say how we you We just do give it. iron polymorphous <laughs> in, in, in the hospital because it's cheap. Yep. And um, yep. my, myself and a colleague, um, Edo Lachlan, I don't know if Ed listens to this, we did a study on inpatients having... Mm-hmm. Gynae and I think it was some urology patients at Fremantle who were having um, inpatient procedures who had um, uh, iron deficiency, and we gave them all um, iron polymaltose over over fifteen minutes in theatre. I think it was like an observational study, the rapid trial, over, yeah, over hundred patients, and and they never have any problems. So yeah. I, I, even though the iron polymaltose um, leaflet, which is in the you know, packaging and stuff, which is you know an old preparation which my understanding was came out in the 60s and 70s for mm. intramuscular use but but it was used a lot for iron infusions I think the package insert says you have to give it over 5 or 6 hours mm. but, <coughs> but most hospitals that give it even um, in the infusion units in the hospital now do it over about 90 minutes or something like that but, um, but we do, we've never seen any problems even at, at higher rates like that I was going to say the only other thing to consider is the total iron you're replacing um, and there is a I think there's a little bit of a reflex response of just giving a gram. Um, yeah. And that might work for most people. But um, And if you remember how you had to calculate the actual dose of iron you needed when you had um, iron polymaltose, that took you yes, a lot longer. Yes, we had longer. a table. Yeah, yes, exactly. Um, and so I guess I'm just, uh, you know, some patients may not have adequate iron replacement if we just have a single dose of iron polymaltose because you can't, um, it's unlikely to completely restore all patients' iron stores. Yeah, um, so... So iron carboxymaltose, the maximum dose is, uh, is 1,000. Correct, as um, per the... But iron polymaltose, you can give like 2,000 2, if you wanted. And it's probably just uh, what the study was set up for and PBS requirements rather than it's right or wrong, but... Yeah, okay. Well, that's I think that's one podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> so we might um, th- thank everyone here and, and pause and we'll come back another time, which might only be a few minutes away. <laughs> do another episode thanks everyone excellent thanks thanks for listening everyone please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandgynaecritcare.org 
where there'll be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time. Crit Care Podcast would like to acknowledge the Wajak people as the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced. We recognise their continued connection to the land and waters of this beautiful place. We pay our respects to elders in past and present and extend that respect to all First Nations people.